You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, I'm Jim Del Rosso, and we have for a part two, because part one was so fascinating, um, Dr. Andy Blauvelt, who is from Portland, Oregon. He's an investigator at Oregon Medical Research Center in Portland. Uh, he was previously the owner and founder of this, but sold it recently, but he's still very active, and he's done a tremendous number of clinical trials. His main areas are psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, but, but certainly others, and has studied many biologic agents, systemic agents primarily uh, at, for a, psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. So Andy, great to have you here. And the first conversation was, was fantastic. So I want to dive right into the second. What about atopic dermatitis and the therapies that we have available now? We have monoclonal antibodies and Janus kinase inhibitors. Right, Jim. It's a... Um... It's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, we've had such an evolution in the psoriasis field and really not much happening at all in atopic dermatitis until recently. And so we had, um, we had dupilumab, um, also known as dupixent, approved several years ago now. And really, I consider that drug like a trailblazer. I mean, it was really an incredible advance. We had patients coming out of the woodwork, right, with such severe AD, and they just flowed into the trials. And they, they just, it, Dupixent was a was just a godsend for so many people because those patients were stuck with cyclosporin, with methotrexate, phototherapy. You know, it just really, really changed the field. You know, it was interesting, Andy. You know, you had the stepwise progression that happened in psoriasis, but it was a quick drop, uh, jump. We got spoiled in atopic dermatitis, right? We went <laughs> from not having... Yeah having what you mentioned, which had a lot of problems and wasn't optimal, uh, the systemics we had, and just topicals, to suddenly have this drug that was really, to use a modern term, a, a game changer, right? It was a game changer. Right. And, and, and people would say to me, well, oh, it's just like uh, 2018. It's just like 2004 when we started with Embrel. And I said, absolutely not. I said, Embrel was, you know, was a good first step, but then we we had we got so much better after that. Whereas whereas Dupixent from the beginning, it was more like a having a Stellara. So for me, um, you know, a really really good drug from the beginning. And we what we've seen is it's held up. It's really held up because it's been kind of tough to beat uh, Dupixent in the last few years. Yep. So a bunch of people now kind of getting into it. Um, we have what I call dupey like drugs. Um, and those there, you have trelokinumab, which is Adbri, um, which is a selective IL-13 blocker. And then you have coming soon, Lebri-kizumab, which is also a selective IL-13 blocker. That's probably going to be approved um, this summer, actually, 2023 summer. So you, those, those three are kind of working in similar ways. Um, <clears throat> and then you had but a Doopy's year Doopy's IL-4 and IL-13, right, works work works in in both types of receptors one and two also so um uh, do you see any difference when what what difference happens in terms of efficacy or safety when you're blocking il4 and il13 versus just il13 anything yeah it's a really good question jim and so back in the day th1 versus th2 and we only had kind of the two to talk about um il4 was considered the prototypic uh, TH2 
cytokine. And so companies were trying to make IL-4 blockers. And actually, way back when, there was an anti-IL-4 drug studied for eczema, and it didn't work. It actually didn't work and didn't go forward. And But the, the whole IL-4 was kind of stuck with us and stuck with immunologists. And so when they were, the makers of dupilumab were working on that drug, they say, well, let's block IL-4 and IL-13, another TH2 cytokine. And um, it worked. And, and really what we think now, it's really the IL-13 part of dupixent that works. It's really not much contribution to the IL-4 blockade. And so that's why we're, we're seeing now those selective IL-13 blockers, because essentially we're, um, we're getting comparable results as we get with dupilumab. It sounds to me like, um, I hate to pick on Garfunkel, but it sounds sort of like Simon and Garfunkel and IL-4 is Garfunkel, <laughs> though he did have a couple of hits in there, right? So he's, he's showing up. It's important to have them, have them there, but you know, IL-13, I always thought of IL-13, anti-IL-13 as having more of a peripheral effect on, on skin as opposed to a central effect of some of the things that might happen in lymph nodes. But, but maybe, I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong about that. You know, actually, Jim, let me talk about it. So, so actually, you, there may be something to that because um, we see you know, dupilumab approved for a number of other conditions. So it's approved for asthma and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, eosinophilic esophagitis. So these other sort of Th2 atopic manifestations, we see dupilumab work in them too. And so maybe in skin, you only need 13 blockade, but sort of for asthma, maybe you do need that IL-4 blockade because we don't have an asthma approval for those selective IL-13 blockers. Right, and I believe tralokinumab was studied early on by another company, not the company that has it for asthma, and it didn't work that well, but it was a lower dose than than what we're using now. So we, we still have a lot more to learn. Um, and now we have the approval for, for polyethylene I almost said polyarteritis nodosa, uh, parigonodularis, <laughs> excuse me, right. uh, parigonodularis, even in patients that don't have any atopic background or atopic dermatitis. So th diseases don't own the cytokines. Those cytokines can, can sneak up in other disease states, and I think we're learning that. But now we have Janus kinase inhibitors. So we have this array of monoclonal antibodies. We have two now, you know, we have dupixent and Adbri, as you mentioned, but we have Janus kinase inhibitors that are very effective for atopic dermatitis, but carry some, some baggage that people get concerned about with safety. Cause, so can you walk me through that, how you decide on utilizing what agent and what you actually do monitoring? I don't, I don't get any baseline labs typically with the depiction, unless I'm expecting the patient may have something else going on. Um, do you get any baseline labs with depiction or Adbury? Um, so you just asked a lot of things there. Yeah, so I'm I, did. Try to break I did. It down. I did. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited, okay. Andy. I can't help it. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to break that down a little bit. So first I'm going to say, um, why do what are the what are the commonalities between the biologics and the jacks they they both are linked to th2 cytokines because the, those cytokines need to signal through the jacks and so they're both blocking um, 
IL-4, IL-13, basically, both types of drugs. And and they're both getting at itch as well. So we know that the the IL-4 receptor alpha is actually on neurons. It's on neurons. And so when we're using both types of drugs, the biologics and the jacks, we're actually blocking itch directly by blocking that um, neuron signaling. So it's really cool. And I think that's why we're seeing the prigonodularis incredible results is we're really we're really blocking the itch rather than sort of getting at the disease. So that's really cool. And that's the link between these four drugs, the two biologics and the two jacks, as they all get at itch. Um, okay, so Let's go to safety of the biologics. So we'll get rid of the biologics and talk about the Jags. <laughs> so the um, bio, uh, Adbury and Dupixent, 100% agree with you, Jim. They're very safe. There's really no blood test monitoring recommended with those drugs. The only, the main issues are going to be um, conjunctivitis, right? So eye disease, um, you get dry eye, you can get red eye, you can get swollen eyelids. I've kind of seen it all. Um, most of those patients are mild and manageable. And I always send to an ophthalmologist, by the way. Um, but sometimes it's really bad and, and you got to stop. You got to stop because the eyes get really bad. So um, I'd say for dermatologists, have an ophthalmologist in your back pocket if you can, and send, you know, any, any Dupixin, Adbury patients that have eye issues, send to the ophthalmologist. Now, when I, when I start those, when I start those drugs, I, I often try to get patients, just like we have atopic dermatitis patients moisturize their skin. I try to get them to use, um, like, a, a, you know, an emollient for the eyes. There are several different products prevent as a preventative i don't know how well it works but i haven't seen a lot of conjunctivitis uh, with either of those two drugs to date so i don't know how helpful that yeah. is do you do anything like that yeah you're lucky jim because um, it's a pretty common side effect and you know anybody that has bad facial eczema or a history of allergic conjunctivitis where their eyes are runny a lot in the spring and fall they're at risk for um for you know the dupe induced conjunctivitis and and those patients definitely um eye drops i you know just just saline eye drops is great and then the main treatment for when it gets worse is just corticosteroid eye drops that are um, used prn so you know not not all the time but sort of to knock down that inflammation right but and what about the the red face that facial rash that we hear about well i want to point out that that conjunctivitis has been seen with both um uh, dupilumab and tralokinumab and and in the pn trials it was lower but there was still some conjunctivitis but some of those people people they did allow some people in that had mild atopic dermatitis i don't know if they found only the conjunctivitis in the people with atopic background. I don't think they broke that down. But, you know, what about the transitioning now to Janus kinase inhibitors or switching to a Janus kinase inhibitor? We have abracitinib and we have upadacitinib, Sabinco and Remvoke, right? So can you walk us through that? All right. So both of these drugs are JAK inhibitors. And they were both approved by the FDA for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in January of 2022. So we have one year of FDA approval. And both of the drugs, what we're seeing is that is not a huge uptake. Uh, 
actually in the dermatology community. And I think the, the drug companies that make them are a little bit disappointed at the uptake. And for me, the elephant in the room, as, as, as you mentioned already, is the is the safety, right? The, the safety of the JAX is kind of scaring, I think, a lot of dermatologists. Um, it's the elephant in the room. Because if you first, well, first talk about efficacy. If you look at efficacy, they're terrific. They're actually, as a, as a group, they're, they're better than Dupixin and Adbury. And so you see, and it's one pill once a day and terrific efficacy and it's fast. You see itch go away, you know, within a few days and the drugs work fast. They're, they're highly effective. Um, so in terms of the efficacy and quickness and, and working on itch, they're the best. But let me ask you a question right there, though, because if you look at how the trials were done, they used two different doses, but the FDA kind of tiptoed into it and set it up in the package inserts differently than how the trials were done. You know, in the trials, a patient may have gotten one particular dose versus a higher dose, right? They didn't start with one and then step up to the other, but the FDA in the package inserts recommended use with e with either one, whether it's Rimvoca Sabinco, you start with the lower dose, and if they don't respond, go to the higher dose. Do you think that's really necessary from a safety standpoint? Because the higher doses work better, right? They definitely work better than the lower dose. It's a really good point, and thanks for uh, catching me on that. Um, but... I'm I paying attention, Andy. I pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'd still think they work better. So so you have 15 milligrams and 30 milligrams of Rinvoke, and you have 100 milligrams and 200 milligrams of Sabinko, okay? So you're right in that in the comparator head-to-head -head trials, they use the 30 of Rinvoke and 200 of Abro. So they use kind of the two higher doses and beat dupilumab. But if the 100 dose of Sabinko and the 15 dose of Rinvoke both work terrific as well. And so that is why the FDA has said, look, because of the safety issues, don't go to the high dose first. They say start at the low dose for both of those drugs and then only go to the high dose if you need it. And if you have good control on the high dose, go back down to the low dose for, you know, to see if you can maintain control. But if you look so at the I safety data, is there you you saving yourself potential adverse effects, the, the array of them, which we'll get into in a minute, by going with the lower dose versus the higher dose? Was, was there that much difference in adverse events in the two groups between the higher or lower doses of those two jacks? Yeah, you do see it. And actually, um, you see it a little bit over time, um, but it's not a huge, it's not like a doubling. You don't right. see like a doubling of side effects with a double dose. You see an incremental so, increase. You see an incremental increase. Yeah, a little increase. bit. Right. And because of that, the FDA says, yeah, because you see a little bit more side effects with the higher doses, let's try to, you know, keep, keep it on the low dose if you can. So let's get into now, you're deciding a patient for whatever reason is not responding as well as you would like with one of the monoclonal antibodies or, you know, they got fatigue from it. They, they were tired of injections, whatever the, whatever the reason is, or they just didn't respond that well, or they have really bad conjunctivitis and they can't get through that. So you're thinking about going to a jack inhibitor. What steps do you take? What monitoring do you do? And 
do you think there is a difference in the in the safety in the younger population that has fewer comorbidities that we're typically using them in atopic dermatitis versus patients that have used jacks for rheumatoid arthritis and other more severe disease, older patients with more comorbidities? A lot of question, but we're going to wrap it up with that. Okay. okay. I'm going to take you step by step so that in, you know, so so doctors in private practice can understand Jack safety. And I just, Jim, I just got back from Hawaii, uh, Maui Durham meeting, and I spoke for 20 minutes on one topic on Jack safety. So I gave a 20 minute lecture, but I'm going to try to take it down to a few minutes <laughs> to okay. give you the highlights from that lecture. And so um, there are five boxed warnings for jack inhibitors. That's what everybody needs to know. And the five box warnings are cancer, heart attack and stroke, deep venous thrombosis, um, uh, serious, infections. serious infections, and death. Okay. The bottom line is, and then the, the history, you have to know the history of where those boxed warnings came from, right? So they all came from rheumatoid arthritis studies and people with an average age of 62, there were 62 coming into the trial. They had to have heart disease to come into the trial. And 75% of the, the rheumatoid arthritis patients were on concomitant prednisone and methotrexate. And they were on a JAK inhibitor called Zeljans, which is a little more broad acting JAK. So you have the creation of these five boxed warnings from trials done on another JAK inhibitor in another population and people who are old who and people who are on prednisone at the same time. So that's where the safety warnings come from. And so I'm a little upset by it because if you look at the safety data and the atopic dermatitis patients um, who are younger, right? The average age is in the 30s. They are not on prednisone or methotrexate. They're on monotherapy. They're on a newer type of JAK that is more selective to JAK1, and they don't have a lot of baseline heart disease risk. And so basically, you have this whole different population with a different type of JAK. And so what's happening in the AD data, three years now, for both Sabinko and Rinvoke, is really only one of the five boxed warnings, Jim, is really playing out for our AD patients, and that's serious infections. So we see a little bit of a signal. Um, it's not huge, but there is a signal for serious infections. So JAK inhibitors that we use in our eczema patients, yes, they can increase the risk of infection. It's not a huge thing, but we need to know that. And none of the other things are really um, statistically significant or above background levels. So even the venous thrombosis, you know, the heart disease, cancer, um, uh, basically uh, none of that is playing out. So that's really good news actually for dermatologists. And I think they, they have to, I think in my opinion, have to start to use jacks because not only in AD, right? We've got jacks now in alopecia areata. We got jacks in vitiligo. Jacks are coming for HS. And I really do think dermatologists need to get comfortable really with this class of drugs and kind of think of them as, you know, a possible infection signal and not worry as much as they should um, about 
all the other sort of warnings that are in the label. Well, you know, think about it. Dermatology was from so many years, a topical specialty. Occasionally, we would take out our prescription pad and write a systemic drug, tetracycline, doxycycline, minocycline. And and when we had to learn about cyclosporin and even methotrexate, there was a learning curve for people there too, because they're doing these blood tests for kidney problems or, you know, blood count. So, so I, I think it's just, I think it's just going to take time. Andy, this has been fascinating. I want to thank you for joining us today and I'm sure I'll be back to you in the future. And do me a favor, say hello to your lovely wife, Molly, for me. She's a gem. <laughs> okay, Jim. Well, I really appreciate you asking me to do this and hopefully um, um, did some good with some folks out there that will help with patient care. That's the goal. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.